We've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, and uh, this book is going to talk a great deal about faith. One of the verses that we're going to see there on the screen is, um, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And as we travel through, we're going to learn some things as to how to walk in faith. What does that actually look like? And that's going to be important because the writer of Hebrews that we believe is the Apostle Paul, as he writes, he's writing to a group. First of all, they've been through some very difficult times. Next verse on the screen He says, you sympathize with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. They were losing their houses because they were becoming believers. Because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting, had better and lasting possessions. So they were learning to walk through what we will call enduring faith, where you have to just go through it and trust in the Lord as you go through a difficult time. On the other hand, there's some who are going to walk through what we would call conquering faith, and it says, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, and shut the mouths of lions. And so as we travel through, we're going to talk about conquering faith, because God's calling some of us to step out and do some great things. And on the other hand, we're going to talk about some enduring faith, because some of us are walking through some very difficult times. Now, in chapter one, we talked about, as as Paul opened this up, he talked about how God came to the earth and how he made purification for sins. That is, he paid the price for our sins. In some ways, that concept is somewhat foreign to us here in in our Western civilization. But uh, you've heard me say, you know, when we think about salvation, that you and I are created in the image of God. Now, what that means is that there's a lot that we can learn about God by simply looking at ourselves, because we are unique in the creation and that we are created in his image. So, for instance, uh, for those of us who have children, we, when we, we look at our children, and now just tell me if this is true, there's something about having this child that you want to invest your life in that child with, with wisdom. And you want your child to grow up and you want your child to do better than you did relationally. You want your child to do better than you did educationally. You want your child to do better than you did financially. You want your child to do better physically. And in every way, you want your child to do, to do well. Is that true? Now, the reason that you feel that way is that being unique in the creation, you are created in the image of God. You get that because you're created in his image, because that's how God feels about his, cre- his creatures as far as you and I as, as human beings. Now, dogs are wonderful, but they're not created in the image of God. So this past year at our house, we took home two puppies who now weigh 50 pounds each. And uh, you know, the interesting thing about that is in this past year, not one time did their mama dog ever write us a letter to see how they're doing, because she doesn't care. Now, as wonderful as she is, she's not created in the image of God. So for her, it's all an instinctual thing, but you and I are different. We're created in the image of God. Now, because we're created in the image of God, there's something inside of us that requires justice. And uh, we're unique in the creation that way. So we look on the news and uh, we see that somebody gets drunk and they drive 85 miles an hour through a school zone and they wipe out a bunch of kids. And uh, we see them go before the judge. Now, if the judge were to look at them and say, you know what, you did it. We all saw it. It's on video. (laughs) We saw it. Um, But here's the thing. I want you to know, I love you. I forgive you. You're free to go. Would any of us be okay with that? And the reason is because you and I are created in the image of God, we require justice. You've heard me say, 
20 dogs live up and down your street. Two dogs get into a fight over a pork chop. One dog kills the other dog. Do the other 18 dogs on your street rise up and call for justice? No, they just want to know, what are you going to do with that pork chop? That's all they care about. Now, so, so why is it that we require justice? We require justice because we are created in God's image. So we have a taste of who God is inside of us. That's why we require that. So God looks down at us and he says, you know, I, I made you and I love you and, and I, want, I want to be in relationship with you, but you've done this stuff. You've lied. You've cheated. You, you've broken your promises. You know, you've, you've been physical with somebody who was not your spouse and you took what belonged to their future spouse. And some of us have ended our first child's life uh, for, for convenience. And God looks on at us and he says, I do love you. And I want to say, you're forgiven, you're free to go. But just like you have a need for justice, God says, you have a taste, but I am justice. It emanates from me. So God says, here's what I'll do, because I don't want you to pay for that. So God says, I will come to the earth as a man, and then I will step in your place, and I will take your penalty upon myself, because I don't want you to have to pay for that. I will pay for that. And then you receive that free gift. And then when you receive that free gift, that's been paid for. So now I can look at you. I can say, yes, you did it, but uh, it's been paid for. So now you're forgiven and you're free to go. And that's what the gospel is all about. Does that make sense? Okay, which is why there on your outline, the very first verse, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that, not of yourselves, you didn't do it, you didn't bring anything to the table, it is the gift of God. So that was chapter one. Now chapter two is going to be a very complex chapter. So what I'm going to do is we're going to move through it, I'm going to stick to the main point as we travel through. Some of the minor points we'll pick up later as we travel through, but uh, so if we miss something today, just know we'll pick it up later. I'm also going to do it a little bit different in the sense that this is broken up in paragraphs. So I'm going to read a paragraph, and then we'll come through and we'll break it down. So chapter 2, verse 1, you're going to want to underline as we travel through. And Paul is writing, and he says, For this reason we, and I've underlined we, must pay much closer, I've underlined that, attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift. Most of our Bibles will say drift away from it. For the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. For how will we escape if we, my Bible says neglect, some of your Bibles might say ignore, but either way, underline that, so great a salvation, underline that. After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed by those who heard, God also testifying with them both with signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So in in this first paragraph, as Paul begins his thought, notice Paul says, we, we, we. Whatever Paul is saying, he's applying to himself as much as he's applying to the hearers. So he's not going, you, you, you. He's saying, we need to do this. So he puts himself in that same category. We also notice that there's an admonition here that we do not drift from what we've heard. There's going to be five such admonitions, and they get stronger and stronger as we go through the book of Hebrews to the point where we come to chapter 12 later on, and he'll be talking to those who are openly believers who are openly defying God's word. 
So we'll see that when we get there. There on your outline, I put Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Now with your pen in hand, he says, we must pay, and here's what I've underlined, pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. I probably should have made this a point, but um, uh, more careful attention means that as we go, we are paying more attention to it than we did before. And here's what we're going to find as we travel through this. Uh, the, the way that we don't drift from it is by paying more and more attention to it. And what we're going to find as we, we travel through this is we're all in one of two places. You want to write this down. Spiritually speaking, I'm either growing or I'm drifting. I'm growing or I'm drifting. When someone says, well, I've, I've grown as far as I want to grow, that's as far as I want, and, and you know, I've come to this part, uh, this point, what, what they're doing is they don't realize it, but there is no plane spiritually. You're either growing or you're drifting. And that'll be something that we'll see as we travel, travel through this. So um, later in, uh, in this, in this uh, letter, Paul is going to deal with one way these particular believers 2,000 years ago were drifting. And uh, notice what he says there in your outline. He says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So 2,000 years ago, they had a problem with believers who were drifting away from going to church. It's been said that in our society today, a regular church, um, a regular church attender is defined by somebody who attends church about once every six weeks. And I would suggest to you, if that's the case, we are a nation adrift. So according to what he says. That makes sense? So um, then you notice this next line on your outline, verse 3, I put it there. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, so great a salvation? So here's what we need to, Paul is writing to believers. So here's what we need to know about neglecting. Write this down. Drifting is neglecting, not rejecting. There's a difference. They're not rejecting it. They're just drifting from it. And uh, he, Paul will never question their salvation in this. But, but there's consequences when you, when you begin to neglect this. It's sort of like if you have a car and you drive 30,000 miles and uh, you never change the oil. It's still your car. You still own it. But you're probably going to find that the performance ain't what it used to be. As a matter of fact, it's going to break down quite a bit. And if somebody neglects that, there's consequences. Not because God's sticking it to you. It's just that when you neglect those things, just kind of naturally happen. Does that make sense? But then he says, so great a salvation, or so great salvation, depending on your your, uh, translation. There is something about this salvation that is so incredible, so great, that whatever you do, You don't want to neglect this. What's so great about it? Well, first of all, we saw just a few moments ago that he came to the earth and he paid the price for all of us, so that was pretty great. But then there's another reason we're going to find in verse 4 why it's such a great salvation. He says, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Remember I said there's going to be some things we're going to skip over, we'll pick up later on. There's a whole sermon in that one verse, but uh, suffice it to say that when you and I begin to drift spiritually, one of the things that we notice is there's going to be a reduction in God's supernatural moving in our life. 
And uh, as a church, we do believe that God empowers and gifts. We do believe that God performs miracles today. But that's all I'm going to say about that today because that's going to be a topic for another day. Okay? And I just want you to say okay so I feel better. Okay, good, 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 good. All right, so, so why is this such a great salvation? Again, we're going to stick with the main point, verse 5. We're going to read from verse 5 to verse 9. And he says, For he did not, and I want you to underline, subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, that is eternity. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Now here's what I want you to underline, this last line. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. We'll come back and talk about that. Verse 9. But we do see him who was made a little, little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, underline, he might taste death for everyone. He might taste death for everyone. So here in verse 6, he says, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him? David, the psalmist there, is writing all the way back in Psalm 4, and he's marveling that God made this creation. And he's kind of put man above the creation. And you look at the creation story, God gave all that dominion of creation to to man, to Adam, to Eve, and to those who were to come after, after them. But when man sinned, Man lost his dominion over the creation. When Jesus appeared, he still had dominion over the creation, which is why Jesus could say, launch your boat out, cast it on the other side, and fish are going to go into the net, because he had that dominion. You try that, probably not the same result. So he had that dominion as as he came to the earth. So man lost that when he sinned. So in order for us to be saved, Jesus had to become a man, a little lower than the angels, becoming a little lower than the angels, but um, that's only for a little while. So you and I were created a little lower than the angels, but God has given to you and I privileges that are much greater than the angels will ever experience. For instance, I want you to notice verse 5 there in your outline. He says, for he did not and, and then you want to make sure you, you get this, subject to angels the world to come. He did not subject to angels the world to come. There on your outline, I put it from the New King James. He says, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. So here's what he's saying. I want you to write this down. Eternity is designed for us, not angels. So in eternity... God's called us to rule and to reign with him, and uh, then we will be, the Bible teaches, greater than the angels. So eternity is not designed for angels. They'll certainly be there. They certainly have a wonderful role, but in that time, there's a, there, it's not subjected to them. It's subjected to us. Well, then you come to verse 8. Verse 8 says, 
you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. That is, Jesus is over it all. And then Paul makes this very special point to a church that's been through a great deal of persecution. And here's what he says, the last part of that verse. He says, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Would you agree with that? I mean, it's, yes, it's true theologically, but right now it appears that you know, we're not really seeing the full effect of this creation and all that's here fully under subjection to him. So why not? Well, it's interesting because in 1 John, here's what it tells us there in your outline. He says, we know that we are of God, and here's the part you want to get, and that the whole world lies in the power of who? The evil one. You ever heard anybody say, if it's God's will, it's just going to work out? That's not true. And here's why. Because right now, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You ever wonder why um, girls are abducted you know, in Africa and the solution is to tweet against it? Or you see beheadings this week in Egypt and people say it's because the people don't have good jobs? And you wonder where in the world does that reasoning come from? It comes from this. Right now, the whole world lies in the power of who? The evil one. And so we're all listening to one of two sources for our wisdom. You are listening to the Holy Spirit, hopefully, and yet the rest of the world, they can't listen to the Holy Spirit. So they can't think like those who listen to the Holy Spirit. So their reasoning makes absolutely no sense to them, and uh, our reasoning makes no sense to them. There it is. Just jump in here. Okay. (laughs) He doesn't know where to go with the sentence. So, so, so you go to school... And uh, your, your daughter needs an aspirin. They won't give that to her without your consent. They got to call you. But she finds herself pregnant and she can go get surgery and have a baby removed from her stomach and you'll never find out about it. That makes no sense to me. Make sense to you? And so, yet to the world, that makes perfect sense. So it, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and that's why they think the way that they do. Okay, so write this down. Our, our difficulty is here, not in eternity. And that's important because this church that he's writing to has been through some difficulty. Verse 9, he says, But we do see him uh, who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, underlined, he might taste death for everyone. So the scope of salvation is it's for everyone. And you want to write that down. Anybody can be saved. Anybody can be saved. So, We say, why is it such a great salvation? And uh, I'm going to read the next paragraph. And in this next paragraph, I want you to underline all of the references to family. All the references to family. So here we go, verse 10. He says, For it was fitting for him whom are all things, through whom are all things, or from whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons, underline that, to glory. To, perf- to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. We'll talk about that in a moment. For both he who sanctifies 
and those who are sanctified are all from, now depending on your translation, some of your translations will say from one. How many of your Bibles just say from one? Okay, underline that. Some of your translations will say from one father. How many of your translations say that? Okay, you want to underline that, one father. And then some of your translations will say from one family. How many of yours use the word family? Good. Okay, you want to underline that. So, so, um, so um, from one father, we're all from one father, one family, from one. And then he goes on, he says, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, underline that word brethren. We'll talk about that. Saying, I will proclaim... Uh, this would be an Old Testament reference to Jesus speaking. He says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren, underline that, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, quoting from the Old Testament, behold, I, Jesus speaking, and the children, underline that, whom God has given me, children whom God has given me. So um, here in this passage, in one sense, we saw, as he relates to us, he calls us his brethren. Why does he call us his brethren? Well, because God became a man just like us. And so in one sense, he's, he's in, that, in that relationship, kind of our older brother, so we get that. And yet, in another sense, we are his children, and he calls us because he's our father, and it certainly said that, and we are his children. So he's using that to kind of describe the relationship. I put verse 11 there on your outline from the NIV because it's the one that resonates the most with me. And he says, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And if that's not your translation, you want to underline that. We're of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. So you want to underline that. So here's the point. Jesus came to make us his family. Write that down. Jesus came to make us his family. And I, I want to explain this, hopefully in a way that, that makes sense, and uh, hopefully in a way that I don't get emotional. If I do, you just bear with me, okay? I want to show you a picture. It's 11 years old. That there is a little girl who is named Fung Jia Shu. When you see her running around the church today, you know her as Hannah Faith Plourd. Hannah Faith Shoe Plourd. And uh, it's an interesting story. In 2002, a man came to our church, and his name was Wes Bentley. And Wes spoke about how there were abandoned baby girls in China. They were abandoned because they have the one baby law. And uh, in China at that time, the way that when you retired... You went to live with your son. That was your social security, and he took care of you. So if you didn't have a son, you had nobody to take care of you in your old age. So they wanted to have boys. And so the little baby girls, they would abandon. And he talked about how they were just abandoned in that way. Well, on the way home from church, and this is back in 2002 when this took place, Cheryl was going home in one car, I was going home in another car, and I sensed the Holy Spirit speak to me, and she sensed the same thing, that God said, you have a baby girl in China, go get her. And so we got home and we started talking about this. And you're not going to leave, but here, here, here's, what I, here's what I, you know, what happened on the way home. She says, the same thing happened to me. That began a year and a half process, 18 months. When I went to China to get Hannah, she was 12 months old, which means 
the decision to go get her was made even before she was born. And um, so it was at that time, uh, we, again, we made the decision before she was born. As we considered that, we realized that, that our decision to love this child was based upon, it, it, was, it was for a child who, who wouldn't be born for five months. And, and not only that, but when we looked at that, we, we realized that we were making this decision based not on our need, but we were making this decision to love this child who wasn't even born based upon her need. You see, when I would go to China, we, we had five kids already, and Cheryl was five months pregnant. So it wasn't like we had this need, but we knew that she had a need. So the decision to go was based upon her need. Was also, we realized that in this decision to go and get her, that had nothing to do with her behavior. See, her not even being born, she had never even behaved. So our decision had nothing to do with her behavior. It's the same thing with God and his decision for you. Well, not only that, it would require me leaving the place of comfort and traveling to a land far away to a very, very strange place. And it would also mean that I would be leaving Cheryl home with four little kids and uh, being five months pregnant. It would also mean paying an incredible price up front before I could take her home. People always say, well, how much does it cost to adopt a baby from China? Well, here's what it costs. It costs what any normal pregnancy would cost without insurance and with complications. And so whatever that is, that's pretty much what it costs. And so we didn't have the money. We just decided we'd start taking those steps of faith and trusting God as we went forward. We knew that if we did this, it would mean assuming full responsibility for her in every, in every aspect of her life. It would mean uh, assuming responsibility for her health, her spiritual well-being, her physical well-being, her emotional well-being, everything, come what may. I mean, in, in China, the, basically, you get the picture, you say, this is your baby. You go there. If there's a problem, that's your problem. You take care of it. And so we knew that going in, that whatever problem there might be, that was going to be our responsibility. It's the same thing with your heavenly father when he looks at you. He chooses you without your behavior, assuming full responsibility for you. It would mean that we would have to prepare a place for her. So I went in June of 2004, but in January of 2004, we began adding on to our house so that she would have a place to come home to. Very much like what Jesus tells us. And by the way, let me just say one thing here, that, that uh, in that, we never thought twice about the cost. We never thought twice about the cost. Uh, interesting story, because Cheryl couldn't go to China because she was pregnant. When we came home, we had to go through the adoption process here again. It was a small process, but we had to do that. So we had to go to this court hearing, this adoption hearing, and so we're in the courtroom, and here's Hannah. She's probably 15 months old at this point. And it was just Cheryl, me, and and Hannah. We had an attorney who represented us. The judge comes in. The judge says, I don't really do adoptions. But um, so he turns to the attorney. She says, I'm I'm counting on you to kind of lead me in what to do. And the attorney says, well, I asked them questions. And based upon the questions, you you determine whether they're really ready to to adopt this baby that they've already brought home from from China. So so it's not like we can send her back. But, you know, we got this. Judge says, okay. So we're sitting there in this little tiny courtroom. And the attorney says, so you brought this baby back from China, and uh, is it still your intention? 
to love her, to take care of her, to be there for her, to protect her. And she went on this whole list. And if that's true, then, then you say yes. Well, Cheryl and I, we couldn't speak. We just started crying. <laughs> just, we, just, we were just overcome with emotion. And the judge looked back and she said, you know, I'm going to take that as a yes. <laughs> and so, so that was that. Now, I want to go to the, uh, yeah, that picture right there. I, I've always found this so interesting because um, you notice at the top of the picture, it says family names. Everybody see that? And it says plured right there. And uh, before I went to China, there's a whole process. So everybody knew that that was my little girl. Everybody knew that was my little girl. The U.S. government had decided that that was my little girl, and they approved it. The Chinese government approved that this was my little girl. The uh, adoption agency, the orphanage, every, you know, everybody knew that she was, was my little girl. When we received this picture, everybody knew, but there was only one person who had no idea that she was my little girl. You know who that was? It's her. You see, it had never occurred to her that she had a father. (laughs) Sorry. It never occurred to her that she had a father who was coming to get her. And um, we were told of her situation. We were told that she would be in a room of a hundred cribs and sometimes two and three babies in the same crib. And there were only three workers for those more than a hundred babies. And so diapers didn't get changed all the time. And, but for Hannah, she didn't know any different how bad that was because that was just normal to her. So she had no idea. So we got the picture and we realized that, that uh, although she had never thought of us we were not in the forefront of her mind. You can imagine that when we got that picture, she was all we could think about. And that's how it is with our Heavenly Father. Many of us had no thought of Him. We weren't, He wasn't in the forefront of our mind, but we were all that He could think about. So then I went there, and uh, it, was, it was an interesting thing because you, they have what they call gotcha day, which is they hand you the baby. Now, um, I don't know how to say this politically correct, but you go to China, and they're all Chinese people. They have not embraced multiculturalism, let's just say that. right. So, so you go there, and they hand you this baby, and, and Hannah had never seen a white guy from America, okay? A very good-looking white guy, I might add. Why, why are you laughing at that? <laughs> at least that's what I tell myself. So they hand her to me, they hand her to me. And she's never seen anything like me. I mean, I look like an alien to her. So, and she just starts hitting, and she's screaming and fighting, trying to kick to get away. And they tell me, they say, walk out of the building. So I take this baby who's screaming and kicking and fighting. She's not saying thank you. So we walk out of the building. And some, by the time we get up to the building, we get down to the, to the sidewalk. All of a sudden, something happens in her. And she realizes that I'm it. I'm it. There's nobody else. And all of a sudden, she puts this death grip on me for the next four hours. You ever had to go tinkle for four hours? <laughs> and, and I could not even pry her off. She just held on. Well, it was interesting because the moment that she was handed to me, although she didn't realize it, she had just received a whole new family. She had just received citizenship in a whole new country. 
a country which I believe is the greatest country that has ever existed, even with all of its problems. And you know, um, her world changed that day, and we brought her home. And she moved in, not into an orphanage where there's only a couple of workers for many, many babies, but she moved into a family that was completely attentive to her, that loved her, that, that rearranged our world to receive her in. And you know, not one time in the past 11 years has she ever said, I want to go back to that. <laughs> She's never said that. In our study today, he tells us that this is so great a salvation. And uh, so here in the paragraph when he says, Father, brother, children, that's what he's trying to convey to us. Does that make sense? Can I just say one other thing on that? I have so enjoyed watching her grow up, first of all in diapers running up and down the hall, uh, climbing, breaking, you know, all this stuff. that goes. I've just enjoyed it. I never want her to come to the place. I mean, we've talked about me going to China and all that, and yeah, it was a cost and all. But I never want to hear her say, I was so wretched and so worthless and, and, and yet, and so, and on and on and on, and yet because of his great compassion, at great cost, he moved and he came and he rescued. It's, it's more like, well, yeah, I did that, but, but that, I don't want her to live there. You ever been to a church where it's all about you are so wretched and disgusting and deep in your sin? And, and well, yeah, true, you know. But but the point the point is that that he loved you so much that he did all that for you. So if she ever focuses in on the price that was paid, it's not to point out how worthless she was because she's apparently worth a lot to me, just like you are to God. If she ever focuses in on the price that was paid and the sacrifice. That's just so that she will know that if I would do that for her, I'll do anything for her. Does that make sense? And because God did that for you, he'll do anything for you. And you're created in the image of God, and that's why you get that. That's why you get that. Notice this verse. Long ago, there in your outline, before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault and now you have to underline those words, in his eyes. Does everybody see that? Are you holy and without fault in your eyes? No. We all know the truth about us, right? That's why we're holy and without fault in his eyes. In his eyes. That's how he sees us. His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this gave him what? Underline that. Great pleasure. You think I wouldn't do that a thousand times over for my little girl? Gave me great pleasure over and over. And that's how God feels about you. Make sense? Um, Verses 14 through 16, I'm not going to read. Go ahead and just fill in the blank. As, As family, Jesus disarmed Satan in my life. We'll talk about that later. I'm going to skip down to verses 17 and 18 so we don't run over. But here's what it says in verses 17 and 18. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren. Jesus had to become a man in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was, underlined, tempted, and that which he suffered, underline the word suffered, he is able to come to the aid. Some of your translations are older. They will say succor, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So Jesus came to the, man, came to the earth. He had to become a man. There in your outline, God, or Jesus became a man so he could understand what I'm going through. Write that down. In verse 17, it says he had to be like his brethren, that's you and I, in all things. And then in verse 18, it says he, was suffer- he suffered and he was tempted. He, was, he suffered and he was tempted. So Jesus had to understand what it was like to be us. So he had to know what it was like to be born as a helpless baby who, who couldn't change his own diaper. He had to understand what it was like to go through a time of hunger, time of thirst. He had to understand all of that. Uh, Jesus had to understand what it was like to go through adolescence. You ever think about that? Had to understand what that was like. He had to understand what it was like to experience rejection from people that he loved. There's this great verse there in your outline. Uh, you ever, if you've ever had somebody that you've loved, you've invested in, you've been there for, and then one day they just walk out of your life and you know the pain of that. Well, uh, notice this verse there in your outline. In John's gospel, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples, not a few, but many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. What a great verse. But you know what I find so interesting about that verse is the address. That's John 666. It's the only 666 verse in the New Testament, and it's all about people walking away from Jesus who he loved and he cared for. So if you've ever had anybody walk out of your life that you loved, he knows what that's like. So he knew what it was like to have people walk out of his life, and he knew what it was like to be betrayed. And uh, this past week, we saw how 21 believers were beheaded and, uh, by ISIS. And, you know, nobody came to the rescue. And Jesus knew what that was like when he was on the cross. There were thousands of his followers in Jerusalem on that day, but nobody came to the rescue. That was all part of God's plan, but he had to experience that because you and I are going to suffer, and he had to know what it feels like to go through what you and I go through. So in verse 17, all of that took place in verse 17. He says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, uh, that he might become a, what's that word? Does your Bible say merciful? merciful? You want to underline that, a merciful and faithful high priest. He went through all of that so that he could be, and you want to write this down, a merciful high priest. See, some of us have grown up in a faith where every time we blow it, we're not who we need to be. We think that Jesus is there going, oh, you're such a loser. I mean, how many times have we got to go through this? I mean, when are you ever going to get it right? You know, and we, we think that he's fed up with us. But really, he's a merciful high priest who looks on and says, you know, I know exactly what that feels like because I went through that. I didn't sin as I went through it, but, but I've been through that same thing and I know those emotions. And going through all of that didn't make me a critical high priest. It made me a merciful high priest. Does that make sense? Verse 18, as we wrap up with this, he says, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to, and in my Bible it says, come to the aid of those who are tempted. Um, in the King James Version, it says, for, and then I put it on your outline, for in that he himself hath suffered, 
being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. How many of you have that word in your Bible? Good, 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 good. Um, from Wearsby's commentary, the word succor literally means to run to the cry of a child. Everybody see that? If you go to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, it means to run on a call to help, to hasten to the help of the oppressed. So if you're like me and I've got all these kids at home, there's always somebody screaming in pain down the hall. So somebody, somebody will, you know, you hear, ah, somebody will be over here, don't you think you need to go check on that? I'm like, ah, it's just a flesh wound. I didn't worry about it. But you know, you know, then there's that, that certain something in their voice and it's different. And all of a sudden, even though now you know they're, and you're gone, you're down the room, you're running. It's just, you, you can pick up on it. The idea is that because he's a faithful and merciful high priest, he's able to come to the aid, but he doesn't just show up. He's running to meet you there. Angels can't do that because they never experienced the pain. They never went through the suffering. So they're, they're there to assist as he sends them, but they don't really fully understand because they've never been through that sort of thing. He's been through all of that. That is why, he says, this is such a great salvation. Eternity is designed for you. You're part of his family. And he comes running to you in your time of need. So you don't want to neglect this. Does that make sense? And let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and just the, um, the way that you've uh, conveyed to us today. I pray that deep down in our soul we come to understand that we're created in the image of God, that we, we relate to our kids the way that we do, the way that we want to, um, because it's something that you've placed inside of us. And every one of us wants to be a better parent than we are. And Lord, you've conveyed in this chapter that there's a great salvation because you really are there for us. You love us and you care for us. And you want to have that relationship with us. Father, I pray for each and every one of us to walk in that. If you're here today and you've never entered into that so great salvation, then today you can do that by just simply saying, Jesus, I want that. I want the Jesus that we've just read about. I want to experience that. And if that's you today and you invite him in, he just steps in. There's no ritual. There's no uh, predetermined prayer. It's just saying yes to him and inviting him in. And he'll step in and begin to work on the details. But if you make that decision today, would you let us know by simply letting, letting us know in the card. And then after the service, there's going to be some prayer partners standing in the front. They'd love to pray with you before you leave here today. Make sure that you solidify that decision by praying with one of the prayer partners after the service. If you have any need whatsoever, again, prayer partners will be standing by. God bless you. We'll see you next time. All God's people said, see you then.